Russell and Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com, radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk show, where we get together and talk about what's happened in the world of sports during the previous seven days, and a little bit of Boston bringing us into tonight's show tonight. Well, lot's going on, and you can join us on tonight's show simply by joining us on the social media, and that includes sending us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. That's dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. We also have a pair of Twitter addresses. Of course, our Twitter address is at alt sports talk, U-L-T sports talk, or at O-H-B-B co-host. A lot of basketball, a lot of football, and a lot of hockey going on for tonight's show. Steve Kerr has gone to the Warriors. Of course, the Cavaliers have fired Mike Brown. And Stan Van Gundy is now the new coach and president of basketball operations for the Detroit Pistons. And our guest tonight is John Macaroon from the DetroitSportsPodcast.com. And he's going to tell us about why Stan Van Gundy is the man with the plan in Detroit for the Pistons. Of course, we're also going to talk about football and who the Cavaliers may take. And the Browns have made a couple of moves here this afternoon as far as wide receivers are concerned. But first... Well, the NFL Draft is the best place as any to start tonight's show, even though last week I threatened I wasn't going to talk about the NFL until training camp in July. That lasted about as long as it took the Browns to make three trades in the first 22 picks of the 2014 National Football League Draft. Let me tell you, As most of you probably know by now, I will tell you exactly what I am thinking about every subject known to mankind. And the NFL draft and the Cleveland Browns are no exception. And I was extremely disappointed in Ray Farmer and the Cleveland Browns draft last week. As a matter of fact, I have been more impressed with what the Browns have done since the draft than I was with the draft. And it all started, evidently, a couple of weeks ago when Josh Gordon, the Browns' star wide receiver, allegedly received a letter from the NFL stating that he was subject to a suspension because he had failed his third drug test. Now, the Browns knew going into the draft that they were subject to losing the only credible wide receiver they had on their roster. But it did not deter Ray Farmer at all from sticking to his board and taking the best player available at the time. And that best player available at the time at number four when the Browns pick came to be was Sammy Watkins out of Clemson. But According to reports, Buffalo swooped in and offered the Browns a swap of their first-round draft picks this year, a first-round draft pick next year, and a fourth-round pick next year. It was a sweet deal for the Browns. I understand why they took that deal. That's the one trade that they made last Thursday night that I understood. Now, the Browns moved down to number nine, swapping picks with Buffalo. But when it came time for number eight, Minnesota was standing there at the podium ready to make their pick. And the Browns offered them a swap of their number nine pick for the number eight pick plus a fifth-round selection in this year's draft, and Minnesota jumped all over it. And with that pick, the Browns took Justin Gilbert, a cornerback out of Oklahoma State. Great pick, 
Don't have a problem with it. What I have a problem with is the trade that led up to that. Why go ahead and make that deal and give up a fifth-round draft pick to swap one spot to get Gilbert when Denarius Denard from Michigan State, just as good a cornerback, is there waiting to be had if Minnesota takes Justin Gilbert and there was no automatic assumption that Minnesota was going to take Gilbert. That, I felt, was Ray Farmer's first mistake. Then came the second mistake, and to me, the third mistake. The second mistake was moving up from number 26 to number 22 in the first round. I felt that was a mistake. Even if you thought and believed the rumors that the Browns were taking Teddy Bridgewater, and that they were afraid that Kansas City at number 23 was going to take Bridgewater, I still say you don't make that deal. Why? Because if Bridgewater is indeed the quarterback that you want at number 26, and Kansas City takes him, so what? You still have Manziel there, you still have Derek Carr there. Now, if Kansas City takes Manziel and Bridgewater is indeed the one that you wanted, he's still there at 26, and you get the quarterback that you did indeed want. That was the second mistake I think the Browns made, was moving up to get that 22nd pick and thus trading another draft pick. But the third mistake I thought they made was taking Johnny Manziel. We heard last week Charlie Casserly state, that there were things in Manziel's background that nobody was talking about that led everybody to let him go down the first round trail. And that's what he did. The entire first round was not around the number one selection, Jadavian Clowney. It was not around the number two selection, Greg Robinson. And it was not around the number three selection and the first quarterback selected, Brian Bortles. No. The entire draft was surrounding what was going to happen with Johnny Football from Texas A&M. It was completely promoted that way by ESPN and the NFL Network. And you can look at the ratings and see that most of the people tuned in just to see where Johnny Manziel was going to go. And he landed in the laps of the Cleveland Browns which I did not want, nor did I like. Why? Because I'm not sure Manziel's game transfers to the NFL very well. If you saw the reports this week, Manziel's quarterback rating during his two years at Texas A&M went down from the first to the second to the third and to the fourth quarter. He's not as good a quarterback in the fourth quarter as he is at the beginning of the game. I don't like his swagger. I don't like his cockiness. I don't like the money symbol that he gives during a great play. And I don't like the Barnum and Bailey circus coming to Cleveland. And now here comes the Cleveland media upset at the Browns. Why? Why are they upset at the Browns? For two reasons. A, rookie minicamp starts on Friday for the Browns, where all of their rookies, all of their draft picks, and their free agent signees are coming to town to get acclimated to professional football, get their playbooks, and get ready for training camp in July. And the Browns have told the national media, stay away. Why do the local media in Cleveland dislike this idea? Have you ever heard of networking? Networking is all over the country in business. It's where you speak to somebody in California, Washington, Wyoming, Texas, Ohio. It's all over the country. You network to get a better job. Same way in the communications realm. These people in Cleveland don't want to stay in Cleveland all their lives. They want to go to New York, California, Los Angeles, San Diego, Dallas, wherever. They want out of Cleveland. There's only a select few that want to stay in Cleveland. And they want the national media to come in so that they can network 
with those people and find out where the job openings are down the road. That's why they want the national media there. That's why they want the circus there. And another thing that I felt, I understand why ESPN did it, but I just thought it was too convenient for my liking. Sal Palantonio is from Philadelphia. He is always covering the Eagles. Why all of a sudden, before the draft, was Sal Palantonio assigned the Cleveland Browns gig in Berea? So now the Browns are going to have to put up with the national media onslaught. I'm going to offer the Browns a very simple suggestion that will work and it can cover their rear ends as far as the national media coming to town. What is it? Years and years ago, before the Browns moved, they used to hold training camp in a little town called Hiram, Ohio. It's a little football team, a little university, out in the middle of nowhere. There are no hotels, nothing in the area within 20, 25 miles. Guess what? Why don't the Browns move training camp back to Hiram, and that way the national media is going to have to really struggle and fight to get to Hiram, Ohio, to cover training camp. Well, here's another thing that the Cleveland media doesn't like. Jimmy Haslam at the Hall of Fame luncheon on Friday says that the Browns had a dinner with Johnny Manziel last week and told him to start acting like a backup, which has got the media in Cleveland up in arms. Haslam praised Manziel for being an ultra-competitor, but reiterated that Brian Hoyer is the team's starting quarterback and Manziel will have to beat out the veteran in training camp. Haslam made it clear that Manziel is not the starter, that Johnny is the backup. Now, Haslam also says the team was not scared off by the celebrity that comes along with Manziel. He said the Browns told Manziel, though, that this is a hard-working town, it's not Hollywood, and that he'll have to come to Cleveland ready to work hard. Now, the rest of the Browns draft picks, here's how they went. They went on the offensive line for their second-round pick, the 35th overall, and picked Joel Bentonio, an offensive lineman out of Nevada. Big, strong kid. Looks to me like he probably is going to be a guard, although Bill Polian on ESPN said that he is smart enough to where he could be a center down the road. That covers the Browns in case Alex Mack does leave in a couple of years. Their third-round pick, was Christian Kirksey, an inside linebacker out of Iowa. I found this pick very confusing because Borland out of Wisconsin, who dominated Ohio State the night that Ohio State beat Wisconsin last year, was available at the time of this pick. Kirksey looks more like, to me, an inside linebacker that's going to move to safety because he's a, he's a very slight inside linebacker. Kirksey was the third-round pick. Also in the third round, the Browns traded up to pick Terrence West, a running back out of Townsend. Now, Townsend is a Division I AA school. Terrence West supposedly is a good running back, but the Browns also got, from what everyone is saying, a better running back in the free agent pool the undrafted free agent pool, and I'll tell you who that is in just a second. And their fourth-round pick was Pierre Desir, a cornerback from Lindenwood, a Division II school who had 25 interceptions during his career at Lindenwood. Now, no disrespect toward Desir, but I have to wonder why Division II coaches, if they know how good Desir is, why they're throwing at him as many times as possible to let him accumulate 25 interceptions. The running back that the Browns got was Isaiah Crowell. He's from Alabama State. According to reports and scouts, this kid is the best running back on the board that was a free agent. He's a one-time SEC freshman of the year who wound up at Alabama State after being suspended twice 
at Georgia. He may have a real shot at making this team. Another name that the Browns have picked up, Carlo Calabrese, a linebacker from Notre Dame. He's a run stuffer who had 49 tackles while attending grad school in 2013. And if you recall, he is the same Carlo Calabrese that was arrested along with Tommy Reese two years ago for beating up a cop in South Bend. Here's another one that the Browns picked up. Connor Shaw. Yes, the same Connor Shaw that has been the quarterback at South Carolina for the last three years. He had 24 touchdown passes this year and only one interception under Steve Spurrier. He could be a surprise. Another kid I'm very interested in from Florida State, Kenny Shaw. He's a slot receiver who had 45 catches for 933 yards and returned punts for the national champions. Then the Browns went out and they started picking up wide receivers, not in the draft, but on the free agent market. After the draft, they picked up Chandler Jones, a wide receiver from San Jose State, who is short but a speedster. He runs a sub-440. Jonathan Krause, a wide receiver out of Vanderbilt, had 42 catches and 714 yards last year on the same team as one of the top wide receiving draft picks, Jordan Matthews. And Willie Sneed IV from Ball State. He comes from football-rich Bella Glade, Florida. He caught 106 passes for over 1,500 yards and 15 touchdowns last year, and he has 195 receptions over the past two years. Now, why did the Browns need all those running backs? As I told you, that's because of Josh Gordon facing the year-long suspension, allegedly for failing a drug test for the third time for allegedly, again, testing positive for marijuana. Now, the this is really up in the air as far as what Gordon is going to receive. He could receive a year-long suspension. He could receive eight games. Nobody really seems to know just what he is going to get. When he first came into the league, he was suspended one time from Baylor. So the NFL gave him one strike and started testing him regularly. Then last year, he failed a drug test for the second time and had to miss the first two games of the season and then play two more without pay. So even though this is the third strike against Gordon, it's still unknown what they're going to do because even Commissioner Roger Goodell has come out lately and said the league is going to look at the drug policy regarding marijuana very soon, especially since two states, Colorado and Washington, and many more are going to follow, by the way, are legalizing it. So with Gordon potentially facing the suspension, not only did the Browns go out and look at the undrafted free agent pool to pick up some help at wide receiver, but they also went to the regular free agent pool and picked up a couple of veterans today. Mile Austin and Earl Bennett should provide help at wide receiver. The Browns announced today that Austin and Bennett have agreed to terms. Austin has spent his entire career in Dallas and has been an outstanding receiver. The Cowboys were interested in bringing him back, but instead he's coming to Cleveland where he could be the number one receiver if Gordon is suspended. Right now the receiver depth chart after Gordon is thin because all the Browns have on it with NFL experience are Greg Little, who can't catch a cold, Andrew Hawkins, whom they just picked up from the Cincinnati Bengals, Nate Burleson, whom they just got from the Detroit Lions and has a broken arm, which caused him to miss the entire 2013 season. And Travis Benjamin, who's coming back after an ACL injury last year. Now, the 29-year-old Austin is coming off a disappointing injury-plagued season in which he caught just 24 passes for 244 yards and no touchdowns. And Cleveland has also signed former Bears wide receiver Earl Bennett. Bennett, a 2008 third-round pick out of Vanderbilt, spent his first six NFL seasons in Chicago, where he caught 185 passes for over 2,200 yards and 12 TDs. And in 2013, he had 32 receptions for 243 yards and four touchdowns. Also this week for the Browns, they signed Pro Bowl cornerback Joe Hayden to a five-year contract extension through 2019 worth $68 million 
which includes a $45 million total guarantee. Because of that, Hayden told the media he now feels this contract will make him play harder. When you get your rookie contract, it's because where you what you did in college. But when you get that second deal, it's because of what you've been what you've been doing since you've been in the league. And uh, it's just something that like I just made me feel like the the coaching staff believed in me, the owners believed in me, and um, it just made me want to just go go even harder. It was an unbelievable feeling. My whole thing is I don't feel like I've peaked at all. You know, I think I can get so much better. Hayden, who's only 25 made the Pro Bowl for the first time in 2013 after recording 60 tackles, four interceptions, and a career-high 21 passes defended, which was second on the team. Well, also coming out of the draft back in February after former Missouri defensive end Michael Sam came out as gay, Dale Hansen launched an impressive monologue over the airwaves of the Dallas-Fort Worth ABC affiliate WFAA. Hansen ripped to shreds the reported concerns of anonymous NFL officials, and his eloquent, impassioned argument quickly went viral. Now that Sam's been drafted, Hansen had more to say on the matter. In another poignant speech Monday, filled with insight, humor, and sarcasm, he starts off by scoffing at how late in the draft Sam was ultimately picked. Missouri's Michael Sam, the SEC Defensive Player of the Year and the first openly gay player in the NFL, was the 249th pick in that draft. Now, you'll never convince me there were 248 better college players and better NFL prospects in that draft. 248 better than the SEC's Defensive Player of the Year? There's just no way. Now, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones says they didn't draft him because he's what they call a tweener. Too small to play one spot, too slow to play another, and he might very well be. The NFL landscape is littered with great college players who couldn't make it in the NFL. Michael Sam might very well be another one, and who would know better when it comes to drafting college players than Jerry Jones? Well, Jerry Jones may not have selected him, but actually I think he had a pretty good reason. So did 31 other NFL teams that passed him by. Hanson? then on the air expresses astonishment that some were so critical of the televised image of Sam kissing his boyfriend after learning he had been drafted. St. Louis finally took him in the seventh round. The 249th player taken in a 256-player draft. And when Sam was seen celebrating with his family and boyfriend, the world apparently shook. We almost collided with the sun and... Yet somehow we have survived another day. I have no problem with what Dale Hansen said as far as the second part is concerned. The first part, I do have some problems. Because I felt like Michael Sam made a mockery of this draft. And he played the NFL and got them to draft him. I don't have a problem with Michael Sam coming out. What he is is what he is. And I respect that. But basically him coming out forced the NFL to draft him. Jackson Jeffcoat, for example, the Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, wasn't drafted, and he played for Texas. Sam always said throughout this entire process that he did not want to be the story. Yet now he's going to do a documentary with the Oprah Winfrey Network, saying he wants to make it easier for other gay football players to achieve their dreams. When he came out as gay, I felt what he was doing was forcing the NFL to draft him. At that point in time, it was felt he may have been a fourth or fifth round draft choice, if that, because, as Hanson said, he is a tweener. But by coming out as gay, he forced the NFL's hands. Somebody had to take him, because if he went undrafted, he could file a lawsuit against the NFL. Well, that into consideration meant St. Louis was probably the logical choice. St. Louis, of course, being in Missouri, Michael Sam went to school in Missouri. Now the Rams can cut him if they need to, but they did give him a chance. It will always be said that the Rams gave Michael Sam a chance. The NFL is saving face and a possible lawsuit because he was drafted. And if Sam really 
wants to be the one to pave the way for other gay football players, the best way for him to do that is to be a real football player, not the story. And one of the players that I thought would have been an outstanding pick for the Cleveland Browns was Alabama quarterback A.J. McCarron. And he fell into the fifth round and right into the hands of the team down south, the Cincinnati Bengals. An outstanding pick, I felt, for the Bengals in this draft. As a starter at Alabama, McCarron was unbelievable. He was 36-4 and and won two national championships. He has good size for the NFL. He's six foot four, two 214 pounds. He proved to be accurate and a good decision maker in college. So why did he last until the fifth round? Well, Alabama coach Nick Saban really doesn't have a good answer for that. You know, A.J. did a great job for us. Um, you know, I, I think that sometimes, you know, people don't evaluate things like I would evaluate things. Uh, I think A.J. was probably the third or fourth best quarterback in this draft. I don't study them all. Um, and he did a fantastic job for us. And I certainly think he's going to be a great pro player and have a very good career. It's not really where you get drafted. It's what you do with the opportunity after you get there. And I think A.J. has a very good opportunity in Cincinnati. And we, we, we want him to focus on that and do a really good job with the opportunity that he has. Saban added that he thinks in the long run McCarron will prove that he can be a good leader and a good quarterback in the NFL. Well, I thought it should have happened, but I didn't think it would. Cleveland Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert felt he made a big mistake when he fired Mike Brown at the end of the 2010 season. However, that didn't stop him from doing it again earlier this week. After finishing 33-49 and in the first year of a five-year deal, Gilbert sent Brown packing, leaving many to ask the question, just how many NBA coaches have ever been fired by the same team twice in a four-year span? The answer is one, and the answer to that is Mike Brown. Jody Valade of Cleveland.com explains why Gilbert made the move this time. I'm sure it's not just one thing. I think probably the combination of the fact that the team didn't perform the way that they had, Dan Gilbert had hoped. He wanted them to be in the playoffs this year. Um, they improved a little bit defensively, but that it, it didn't seem like Mike Brown's style meshed with the players they had. Um, and it, maybe this is a concession that they're just going to kind of scrap the whole become a defensive team and just play to their strengths, which is, you know, be a run-and-gun offensive team, which is what, you know, David Griffin grew up watching in Phoenix, and maybe that's what Kyrie Irving is better suited for. Well, absolutely. Kyrie Irving is better suited towards playing any type of offense other than the one Mike Brown had implemented in Cleveland, which at times didn't appear to be any kind of offense whatsoever. The offense for the Cavaliers was so inconsistent because Mike Brown did not consistently work on offense. The only thing he knew about offense was how to stop it on defense. But he did not know the intricacies of running an offensive type of ball club. Well, in addition to firing Brown, Gilbert announced that he's retaining David Griffin as the club's full-time general manager. Griffin had been the interim GM since February 6th, when Gilbert fired Chris Grant one day after the Cavs lost to a Los Angeles Lakers team, which finished the game with just five eligible players. Gilbert said Griffin would lead the search for Brown's successor. What's not known right now is was it David Griffin's desire to fire Brown or was it owner Dan Gilbert's? Again, let's hear from Jody Valet. I, I got it. I'm, I'm sure it was in partnership, but I want to say that Dan Gilbert probably had more influence here. Um, it sounded like, you know, he never actually came out and said anything fantastic about Mike Brown at the end of the season. He mm. still haven't actually heard Dan Gilbert say anything to us. He's a kid spoken in a relief. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that Gilbert probably might have mentioned that, uh, you know, this is probably not 
the, the best, the, maybe the best coach for the, the team that they have. And, you know, all along, Mike Brown was Chris Brown's guy. You know, they have a long history together. And, and so I didn't think it would, anyone thought it would end this quickly. But, you know, it, you had to know that David Griffin was going to take a closer look at him. Sometimes I think Dan Gilbert is suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I don't mean to say that lightly. But I think it's true, just simply over the fact that LeBron James left the franchise in 2010. It caused Gilbert, after LeBron left, to fire Mike Brown and also fire Danny Ferry. And then he went on a one-man hunting expedition to try to get Tom Izzo in to run the Cavaliers organization. Izzo was this close to taking the job, but he didn't. That left Gilbert to go to Byron Scott. Byron Scott lasted three seasons, and when Scott gave up numerous 20-point leads last year, it led Dan Gilbert to think, hey, maybe Mike Brown wasn't so bad in his defensive philosophy, and that's why he brought in Mike Brown. What happens with the head coaching position currently? Well, David Griffin, the new GM, comes from the Phoenix Suns. He worked with Steve Kerr when Kerr was the GM with the Suns. And we're going to get into Steve Kerr here in just a little bit. In the article I wrote today for UltimateSportsTalk.com, I mentioned that the coaches that are getting primary contemplation by Griffin right now are former Golden State coach Mark Jackson, George Carl, another former Cavaliers coach, Vinny Del Negro, who has been the coach of the Los Angeles Clippers and Chicago Bulls, Alvin Gentry, the former coach of the Phoenix Suns, when Griffin was there with Kerr, Mike D'Antoni, another head coach of the Phoenix Suns, who was there with Griffin and Kerr. Here's an interesting one, though. Chauncey Billups. Billups is a very interesting character. He's still playing. He would take the Jason Kidd route to coaching the Cavaliers. He'd come right off the playing floor and into the coach's booth. And my pick, though, has got to be Mark Price. Price, to me, in my article that I wrote this morning, has got everything the Cavaliers want. He would bring instant credibility to the coaching position for the Cavaliers. Name one guy except for Mark Jackson that would bring excitement and credibility to the Cavaliers' head coaching position. But Mark Jackson's ego is such that it will not allow him to coach two teams in the NBA, Cleveland or Utah. And the job Jackson really wants is the Los Angeles Lakers. There's no way Phil Jackson is going to hire Mark Jackson as head coach of the Knicks. They just will not work well together. And Phil Jackson respects the opinion of Jerry West, Jerry West was the former consultant and GM of the Los Angeles Lakers when Phil first took over the Lakers from the Bulls, and they respect each other. And Jerry West does not feel Mark Jackson is totally sold out to being an NBA coach. So Mark Price would bring instant credibility and respect to the position. All the players would have to do is look up into the rafters of Quicken Loans Arena to see that Price was an outstanding ball player and knows how to play the game. He's got a coaching background. He was an assistant coach last year with the Charlotte Bobcats. He can teach Kyrie Irving how to play the point guard position. They are almost mirror identical twins in how they played the ball game. Mark Price was a shooting guard, point guard, coming out of Georgia Tech. Kyrie Irving the same way, out of the ACC and Duke. Kyrie Irving needs to learn how to play point guard in this league, when to shoot, when to pass, and Price can teach him that, along with teaching him the intricacies of running the pick-and-roll offense. And Price is a defensive-minded coach. This is what the Cavaliers need, a breath of fresh air, not a retread like a George Carl. Although I wouldn't mind George Carl to a certain extent. Carl has won everywhere he's gone. But a Lionel Hollins, I don't want him. Mo Cheeks, I don't want him. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Steve Kerr, now the head coach of Golden State, will take Mark Price with him if Price does not get the Cavalier job. Another name to throw out there that I learned of this afternoon, Patrick Ewing, another assistant with the Charlotte Bobcats. Golden State won the bidding war with the New York Knicks for Steve Kerr on Wednesday, hiring him away 
from the TNT broadcast table to be their coach. Kerr agreed to a five-year, $25 million deal with Golden State, said his agent Mike Tannenbaum. The Warriors confirmed the agreement last night and said they will introduce Kerr at a news conference after the contract is complete. Kerr had been in talks with the New York Knicks about becoming their coach since Phil Jackson took over as team president in March. He won three titles playing for Jackson in Chicago and another two under Greg Popovich in San Antonio. Where can you learn the coaching position position any better than under those two guys, Phil Jackson and Greg Popovich? The NBA.com's David Aldridge says geography had everything to do with Steve Kerr going to Golden State to coach. Steve lives in San Diego. His daughter goes to school at Cal. She plays volleyball. His son is in college. One of his two sons is in college in San Diego, and the other one's in high school in San Diego. So uh, the idea of being about an hour north, you know, via plane, appealed to Steve. Uh, the, you know, the, the roster, I think, appealed to him. The, the Warriors clearly have a lot of talents on that team with Curry and Thompson leading the way, but you saw Green in the playoffs play really well, and Iguodala and Bogut, when he's healthy, they, they, they obviously have a whole lot of talent. The Knicks' job was appealing to him because Phil was the was the president and would be in charge, and he, you know, he reveres Phil and has a great deal of respect for Phil and would have certainly been happy, I think, working with Phil in New York, um, but uh, their climb back might be a little stiff, steeper than maybe where Golden State is now, and I think that was the thing. But I really believe at the end of the day he wanted to be closer to his family, and this gives him the best opportunity to be close. Kerr called the offer to coach the Knicks a tantalizing opportunity, and he said it was agonizing to call up Jackson and tell him no, that he wasn't going to take the Knicks job because of the affection he has for Phil Jackson and what he's done for Steve Kerr's career. Well, not only was Steve Kerr turning down the New York Knicks job and going to Golden State a surprise, but the front runner for the Golden State job a couple of days ago appeared to be Stan Van Gundy. He took the Detroit Pistons job. So let's bring in from DetroitSportsPodcast.com, John Macaroon, to tell us about that. John, nice to have you along tonight. How are you today? Oh, it's great. Thanks for having us on. Uh, we appreciate you, you reaching out to us. Well, thanks a lot for coming on on such short notice. Stan Van Gundy, what makes him the man for the Detroit Pistons now? Now, here in Detroit, you know, obviously after missing the playoffs now, we hold the record now for missing the playoffs for the last five seasons. I mean, since 2008-2009, the Pistons have been an abomination in the Eastern Conference. I mean, you can reach the playoffs with a sub-500 record. And so, obviously, Joe Dumars had to go. You know, with all due respect, he built a team that won a championship in 2004. But since then, you know, they got to the Eastern Conference Finals several consecutive seasons. But ever since the Charlie Villanueva, um, Ben Gordon era, and then last season bringing in, you know, Brandon Jennings and Josh Smith, the writing was on the wall that things had to change. So Tom Gorris, now in his third year owning the Pistons, had to do a search and had to get someone to, you know, revamp the Pistons organization. And so this, you know, this hire, Adam and I talked about it on our podcast, and the word, the, what we're thinking is cautiously optimistic. Because Dan Van Gundy, you know, has been given a job for five years at $35 million. So he's not going to be fired like Mo Cheeks after 50 games. So a lot of us here in Detroit were cautiously optimistic that Stan Van Gundy can come in and lead this team to the playoffs. Now, the big question is this with Stan Van Gundy. The question is not, can Stan Van Gundy coach a, uh, coach a basketball team? The question is, without any experience, can he go to the front office and manage the dual roles as head coach and president? And so here in Detroit, we're kind of like, you know, we're cautious because can Stan Van Gundy really go and can he really go and manage the dual roles? Because he's never done it before, and that job as president is a full-time job. I mean, it, it, coaching a basketball team involves interacting with the players, X's and O's, while running an organization 
is a whole different beast. You're in charge of hiring people. You're in charge of scouting. You're in charge of the draft. You're in charge of basketball operations. And so Dan Van Gundy is going to have a big job ahead of him. And the head coaching job, I think, with the Pistons is a daunting task alone. John Macaroon, our guest here tonight on UltimateSportsTalk.com, talking about the Pistons' new head of basketball operations and coach, Stan Van Gundy. John, what's Van Gundy's first move with this team? What do you think it'll be? I think they're good. I think he's reached out to Otis Smith, his former um, uh, colleague there in Orlando. I think he needs to set up and he needs to set up an organization and needs to set up his management team that's going to help run the draft. I mean, right now, the Pistons, their lineup kind of is in disarray. You're going to have to address a couple of things. Obviously, he's going to have to address uh, Greg Monroe. He is a restricted free agent, but with his talent and his size, he's going to draw some attention from other clubs in the NBA. And so I think, you know, the first step is to fill out his staff in terms of assistance and in terms in the upper management in terms of who's going to be the general manager, who's going to be in charge of uh, scouts, who he's going to retain because, you know, Adam and I on our podcast, we just wanted Tom Gores to clean house after Joe Dumars because the Pistons basketball has been so bad the last couple seasons that it was unwatchable. I mean, when you go to games at the Palace, the atmosphere was pretty down. Attendance is down. And so Stan Van Gundy's job is going to be, you know, his first, his first order of business, bring in a staff that can evaluate talent, that can – um, that can evaluate the talent and that can make good basketball decisions for the Pistons to move forward. John, Joe Dumars started out so promisingly well early in his career, and then he just seemed to go into a downward spiral. What happened to Dumars? I think, you know, I think Joe Dumars once is living in the, lived in the past for too long. I mean, he lived, you know, he played in the in the epic bad boy era. And so it all began to crumble, really, when he chose Darko Milicic with the number two pick. Now, that was the crack in the foundation. That didn't lead to the house falling down, but that was a crack. You had a chance to build a dynasty. You passed on Dwayne Wade and Carmelo Anthony, future Hall of Famers. You passed on them. And so, yes, you had a championship team in 2004, but the writing started to become on the wall that maybe Joe Dumars' ability to evaluate talent had gone down. And then there were so many draft picks in the first round that didn't pan out for the Pistons. Rodney White comes to mind. And then, you know, you had two huge off-seasons with big money to spend. And the talent that you brought in, it's really quite laughable. I mean, Charlie Villanueva, Ben Gordon... Brandon Jennings and Josh Smith, those four guys alone, when you say those names in basketball circles, you just get laughter. I mean, Charlie Villanueva was basically earning 150 k plus a game to sit on the bench for multiple seasons. And so when you have talent evaluation that poor for that long a period of time, the, the organization took a steep dive and we just have not been able to recover. And so after a long run, Joe Dumars, with all due respect, had to go. And I think the organization handled it well. There was no major press conference. There were no big blowouts. He just kind of re- respectfully resigned to the background. And he's still with the organization, which kind of shows the respect that the Pistons do have for uh, Joe Dumars and the work that he did for them. But it is definitely time for a change, maybe one or two years too late. John, nationally, I think Van Gundy came out of nowhere to get this job. I know one of the primary names that was expected to take over the entire organization, if he was going to leave college, was Tom Izzo. Was there ever a thought that Izzo might take over the franchise? We only heard rumblings briefly just because Tom Gores and Izzo have the relationship at Michigan State. Our owner, Tom Gores, is an alumni of Michigan State University. But in all honesty, if you're Tom Izzo, you don't need to leave Michigan State. It is a plum job. He is the king of East Lansing. I mean, he's won one national title, has gotten to numerous Final Fours, and he's got the respect nationally as being one of the elite college basketball coaches. 
So why do you want to go to the NBA and deal with the headaches and dealing with the players? If I'm Tom Izzo, I stay in East Lansing until I retire. I mean, unless you get the plum job, I mean, you get the OKC job, or you tie yourself with LeBron James for the next five years, you just stay in East Lansing and enjoy, you know, continue to recruit good talent. And really, Tom Izzo has more work to do. One national title is great, but a lot of other head coaches have one too. We need to... Tom Izzo needs to continue to build the Michigan State brand and get us more national titles and work towards getting elite college basketball players. Yeah, I was kind of surprised a few years ago, John, when Izzo, according to all reports and what my sources were saying, he was this close to taking the Cleveland Cavaliers job before LeBron had left because of his friendship with Dan Gilbert. And my feeling is if he didn't take it then, he's probably not – ever going to come to the NBA. Yeah, I think also, too, you hear, I think Tom is so smart. He's using the NBA as a way to leverage himself with Michigan State because when you are a hot commodity, then you can have leverage with your employer and say, hey, listen, you know, maybe a couple hundred grand more a year, maybe some more things, more incentives, more bonuses. So I think that Tom Izzo is very smart. He's using his um, popularity and his and other um other jobs being available as a way to leverage himself at Michigan State. I don't think, in all seriousness, there is a job that Tom Izzo would leave for right now. John, one quick question, one final question here tonight. There are reports coming out of Cleveland today. Of course, they've got an opening in their uh, head coaching position also after Mike Brown got fired. That one of the guys that they're interested in is current Piston Chauncey Billups. What do you think about that idea, and do you think Billups would make a good head coach in the NBA? Oh, most definitely. I think Chauncey Billups has um, can relate to, to today's players. He has a great ability, I think, to teach young players, and I think he's been through the ups and downs in the NBA. You have to remember, Chauncey Billups was drafted very high to, with the Boston Celtics, but then he started getting traded around and became a vagabond, jumping from team to team before he landed with the Pistons. And so he has the experience and he has the ability to relate to the players what it's going to take to survive in the NBA. And I think that, you know, unfortunately for the last couple seasons, he's been injured and he didn't have a real good solid chance to teach guys like Brandon Jennings. And I'm kind of hoping he stays with the Pistons. I mean, he left, you know, a few years back and Joe Dumar did bring him back. But it, this season was injury-plagued. But I think, you know, the, the Cleveland job would be a tough job to take because, you know, you know, he's got building pieces there with Kyrie Irving. But I just think that if he just wait, maybe play another season, if he just hangs on a couple more years or maybe one more season, there might be some more appealing jobs than the Cleveland job. But, you know, I have full faith and confidence that a Chauncey Billups would be very successful in the NBA. Our guest here this evening has been John Macaroon from DetroitSportsPodcast.com. You can catch him on Twitter, at Detroit Podcast. John, thanks for joining us here tonight and explaining the Detroit situation. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys for having us. Every new show comes out on Thursdays. You can download our show on iTunes, the Doc and Jack Show, on the Detroit Sports Podcast. I really appreciate you guys messaging us. I appreciate it. Our thanks to John Macaroon once again from DetroitSportsPodcast.com. You can catch their new episodes, as he said, every Thursday night at the website, and you can follow him on Twitter at Detroit Podcast. Well, back to the NBA after squandering a late 13-point lead against the Oklahoma City Thunder, a collapse that left coach Doc Rivers railing into the officiating during his post-game news conference. The Los Angeles Clippers collectively tried to let go of Game 5 and focus on Game 6 tonight of their Western Conference semifinal series. The NBA defended their referees and the way they handled the last 11.3 seconds remaining in the fourth quarter on Tuesday night. When it appeared the ball went out of bounds off Reggie Jackson, but the Thunder were awarded possession by the referees after video review. After the game, Doc went ballistic on the refs and said, let's just take away the replay system. Let's take away the replay system. Because that's our ball, we win the game. And we got robbed because of that call. And it's clear. Everybody in the arena saw it. That's why everybody was shocked 
when they said Oklahoma City. That was our ball. Whether it was a foul or not, it was. But they didn't call it. The same thing happened to us in the Golden State series where they tried to reverse the call. They didn't even want to look at the replay because they knew it was a foul. But then they had to look at the replay, and they had to go by what it said. And so they gave Golden State the ball. And then the NBA later came out and said, well, it should have been a foul on the call. The official on that play knew that he made, didn't see the foul, but he had to be honest on the replay. That didn't happen here. But at the end of the day, we have a replay system that you're supposed to look at. And I don't want to hear that they didn't have that replay. That's a bunch of crap. And we did our own stuff. We should have never lost that game. We stopped playing with three minutes left. We were milking the clock. Uh, we turned the ball over. We still have the right to win the game if the ball says it's our ball. That could be a series-defining call, and that's not right. And that podium was really taking a beating during that tirade. I'm not a Doc Rivers fan. I'm not a Clippers fan. But I have to agree, Doc Rivers has got a very good point here. This is proving that the league needs to reexamine their officiating practices because their philosophy of not calling a foul in the last few seconds of a game is proving to be hazardous not only to a player's health, but also to the replay system. And that philosophy has trickled down not only out of the NBA to the college ranks, but I'm telling you, you go to a high school game and officials feel the same way. The old adage is the officials do not want to play a part in how the players win the basketball game or lose the basketball game. And I'm here to tell you, if it's a foul in the first minute of the game, and the first 30 seconds of the game, and the first five seconds of a game, it should be a foul in the last minute, the last 30 seconds, and the last five seconds of a ball game, no matter what. The players in the NBA understand that the referees are not going to call a foul in the last few seconds of a game. So what do they do? They play hack whomever has the ball. And that's what's going on in the playoffs now. And the NBA has to put a stop to that. Now, the league released a statement from President of Basketball Operations, Rod Thorne, saying, with 11.3 seconds left in the game, the basketball went out of bounds on the baseline, and the referees ruled the ball belonged to the Thunder. The referees then used instant replay to review the play. In order to reverse the call made on the court, there has to be clear and conclusive evidence and there was none in the officials' eyes. The officials' eyes were the only ones in Oklahoma City that couldn't see that the ball went off Reggie Jackson's hands last. The same thing happened in last night's game between Brooklyn and Miami when Paul Pierce on the sideline in front of the Miami bench got hacked. The ball went out of bounds. Brooklyn got the ball back. But it was definitely a foul. And again, the league's image continues to be tarnished, not by the Donald Sterlings of the world, but by the officials that they're putting on the floor. Now, that game tonight will be game six. The Clippers are down to Oklahoma City, three games to two, but the game tonight will be in L.A. at Staples Arena. Now, coming up here in a little bit, it will be Indiana taking on Washington. Have you ever seen a team in the NBA playoffs like the Washington Bullets? They're not the Washington Wizards. To me, they're the Washington Bullets. But still in all, the Wizards are 5-1 and one on the road in the playoffs this year, and they get no publicity. They get no love out of anybody. Nobody in the media talks about Washington. All they talk about is, why is Indiana playing so badly? Even when Indiana loses, it's because they played badly. When they win, they played badly. Nobody is paying any attention to this series. But the winner of this series will move forward to take on the Miami Heat in the Eastern Conference Finals. And Indiana can clinch it tonight with a win in Washington. And that's going to be a tough thing to do. And as I said, Oklahoma City and the Clippers also play tonight. The winner of that series will take on San Antonio. 
The Spurs finished off Portland last night, four games to one, and the, the Spurs are sitting back waiting to see who they will play in the Western Conference Finals. That being said, it was fairly interesting. I was listening to CBS Sports Radio earlier this morning, and one of their female talk show hosts, Amy Lawrence, was speaking about how anyone who would assume that the NBA Finals would automatically include the San Antonio Spurs and Miami Heat were off their rocker, especially the way Oklahoma City and the Los Angeles Clippers have been playing lately. Well, let me tell you, I surveyed five people today and asked them if it was wrong to assume that San Antonio would be playing Miami in the NBA Finals, and all five said it's very safe to assume that that would be the way it is. The NBA is hungry for ratings, especially the way the NHL playoffs have been going lately. And they want the Spurs and the Heat in a rematch from last year's finals. I think Amy Lawrence is wrong. And I mentioned to you just a few minutes ago, Donald Sterling. And LeBron James says the NBA is progressing good enough for now to remove banned Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling from his stake in the team, but that there needs to continue to be urgency in the process. Earlier this month, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver banned Sterling from all league functions and activities and has pressed the league's other 29 owners to vote to remove Sterling from his controlling stake in the team. James has been one of the league's most outspoken players on the Sterling controversy and has demanded the NBA kick its longest tenured owner out. But James on Wednesday denied he has told players union members he would back a boycott if Sterling still owns the team next season. James said the focus needs to return to the games and not on any potential boycott. He also added that he trusts the league's process so far with two league finance committee meetings having already been held to determine how best to remove Sterling from ownership. According to league bylaws, removing Sterling from his stake in the team would require a vote by 75% of the league owners. Silver has not yet announced when a vote among owners would take place, or even if it will be public or private. Sterling and his estranged wife, Shelley, have indicated that they will fight any attempt to force them to sell. James said the players understand the battle could play out in the legal system for several months. If LeBron thinks this is only going to last for several months, He's not only kidding himself, but he's kidding the union. Finally, on tonight's show, the NHL. And the Stanley Cup playoffs are continuing down to the Stanley Cup Championship Series. Now, there is no game on the NHL schedule tonight. For the first time in almost 40 nights, there is no game in the NHL tonight. And that's because there is one final game set in the conference semifinals. That's out west where the Los Angeles Kings will be playing the Anaheim Ducks in Anaheim tomorrow night, Game 7, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and the winner will move on to play the Chicago Blackhawks. Meanwhile, the Eastern Conference Finals are set. The New York Rangers, fresh off their Game 7 victory over the Pittsburgh Penguins a couple of nights ago, will be taking on the Montreal Canadiens. Montreal beat Boston last night in Game 7 in Boston. Thus, they have the home ice advantage over the New York Rangers in the Eastern Conference. That series will begin this Saturday, 1 p.m. on NBC. The winners of those two conference finals will meet in the Stanley Cup Finals in just about a week and a half. And that's going to do it for tonight's show. Our thanks to you for listening here this evening. Don't forget, Mark Donahue and I will be back with another Ohio Baseball Weekly show this Monday night at 9 o'clock here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to John Macaroon here this evening from DetroitSportsPodcast.com for talking to us about the Stan Van Gundy hiring by the Detroit Pistons. But, of course, most of all, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. I also want to thank Greg Mitchell, our producer, for tonight's show. 
That's going to do it for tonight. I'll be back again next week. We hope to be talking with the hashtag sports guys about Buffalo trying to get a new stadium and the trade of Sammy Watkins. Don't forget Monday Night Ohio Baseball Weekly. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night.